Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, November the 28th. It is the first Sunday of Advent, and I hope that you and yours certainly had a very happy Thanksgiving. We continue looking at 2 Thessalonians. Today we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read from the ESV version. The man of lawlessness. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we come to a passage now where we must confront the question of whether the church will go through the great tribulation. Does the Lord come for his church before the great time of trouble that is coming? Does he come in the middle of it? Or does the church, in fact, go through the tribulation and Jesus comes at the end? This is this is a debated and controversial question in, in Christian circles, in, in scholar. This is, this is a, uh, a question that comes up over and over. The scriptures are at times really hard to understand concerning these issues. That's why there's a difference of opinion among believers regarding them. But all evangelical Christians agree, however, that only these three possibilities exist, a pre, a mid, or post-tribulation coming. So this question should not be confused with a similar sounding issue concerning the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. There are also pre-millennial, post-millennial, and amillennial viewpoints, which deal with the question of whether there will be a millennium or not. But we are not dealing with the question of the millennium this morning, but with a question which has been somewhat of a battleground through the centuries. Will the church still be here on earth during the great time of trouble? Well, I've, I've read some arguments pro and con, and I'm not here to try to share all of that information with you. There's no way to do that. And I'm really not trying to change your theology uh, if you have one on this issue. 
as we go through these verses. But, but I do want to look at these verses of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, of what the Scripture teaches about the church and this tribulation, this great tribulation. So Paul introduces the chapter with these words. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that that to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Second Thessalonians, excuse me, two, one through two. So there are two very important matters here which we want to deal with briefly. First of all, Paul clearly states what he wants to talk about. He is relating the coming. We've been talking about this phrase, the parousia of Jesus, to what he calls our assembling to meet him. So biblical scholars agree that this phrase refers to what we call the rapture of the church, described in these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We, we talked about this already. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So if we think of the coming of the Lord as as just a single event that occurs, for argument's sake, within a 24-hour period of time, then we will conclude that this phrase, our assembling to meet him, is part of that event. So if that's your predisposition, you will already have begun to conclude that the Lord's appearing in glory does not come until the end of the tribulation and the rapture will be part of it. But, we, but, but when we remember that the word parousia means presence, not coming, although it is frequently translated as coming, it suggests a series of events during the whole of which time Jesus is present. So if we look at it that way, then Paul, then what Paul is proposing to discuss here is at what point does our assembling to meet Jesus come in that series of events? In other words, the time of the rapture. The second thing to note here is in these introductory verses, Paul describes the condition of these Thessalonian believers as one of deep agitation and disturbance. So how these words are translated will also go far toward determining what position one would take regarding the rapture. Paul is is uncertain of what caused this agitation. Something had started them thinking that the terrible day of the Lord, end quote, had already begun and that they were already going through it. In the first letter, Paul had described that day as one of sudden destruction with no escape possible as as a woman in travail. We used that word and looked at that. And the Old Testament prophets had described it as a day of distress, anguish, ruin, devastation. These letters clearly show that the Thessalonians were going through a time of great persecution under the Roman authorities. Perhaps someone in their, in their assembly had, had uttered a prophecy or had interpreted a passage of Scripture to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And perhaps, as Paul himself suggests, the, the, a letter purportedly written by him was read saying that the day of the Lord's wrath had arrived. And Paul evidently was, was unsure exactly what had brought on the, the agitation that they were experiencing. But the result is, is not, as the RSV text has it, is that they were shaken in mind or excited. That suggests that 
having already been taught that Jesus would not come until the end of the day of the Lord, they were excited that he was now about to appear. And if the passage is read that way, it looks as though the church will go through the tribulation. If the Lord was not coming until the end of the time of trouble, then they could now count on his soon coming, and they became excited in anticipation that Jesus himself was about to appear. We can understand why they would think that if we can put ourselves in their shoes. So one post-tribulation commentator says that what was going on was wild anticipation of the immediate return of Jesus. But the words do not mean that. The phrase literally says you were shaken out of your mind. We would say they were driven out of their wits. They were maybe uh, all shook up, so to speak. Linked with this is a word that can only be translated or is only translated as disturbed. It's the same word alarmed in the RSV of Mark chapter 13, verse 7. They were not excited and jazzed up about the coming of the Lord. Instead, they were scared out of their minds, sweaty palms, white knuckle in it. So the question this raises is what would make them feel that way? Why, why did the Thessalonians feel the way they did? They thought the rapture had occurred and they had somehow missed it. And now the day of the Lord had arrived. It seems clear that this is the condition that Paul is describing among the Thessalonians in these opening verses. In verses 3 through 5, we see how he handles the situation. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God of, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I, I told you this? Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. So notice that Paul does not say to them, hey, now don't worry. If the day of the Lord had come, you, you would not be here. You would have been raptured. The fact that Paul does not say this is, is, is made a lot by post-tribulationists. They say, if it's true that Paul had taught them that the, the Lord of, was coming before the day of the Lord, then he would have simply said to them, hey, you wouldn't be here if the day of the Lord had come. But the fact that Paul does not say this makes them feel sure that Paul had taught them a post-tribulation coming. So we have to ask ourselves, why did he not say that? The answer is that Paul was not sure that all of them had truly become Christians. He's very careful not to risk giving them a false sense of assurance by saying, hey, if you believe in Christ, then you're safe. There are many people who believe themselves to be Christians, but they're not. They have gone along with the outward appearances of Christianity, but they've never surrendered their inner will to the Lord. And if Paul had said to nominal Christians in Thessalonica that they would that they would certainly have been raptured, he would have sealed them into maybe a false view of their own security. As a matter of fact, we'll see here in a moment, he does say to them that Christians will be raptured before the tribulation, but he does so in a very guarded and hidden way, and we'll see more of that in just a minute. We have to also point out that there's a lot of evidence that the word that is translated rebellion or apostasy, some versions have it, should more clearly or more properly properly be translated the departure. 
read the way Paul is clearly saying that the day of the Lord cannot come until the departure of the church has first taken place. However, for the sake of argument, let's take the word as apostasy, rebellion. So what Paul is saying then is that the unmistakable sign that the day of the Lord has begun is that the man of lawlessness, there's this phrase, the King James renders it the man of sin has been revealed. And the great worldwide apostasy that he will lead has started. So let's point out here that this agrees exactly with, with what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, which deals with the great series of events that have to occur before the time of the end. Jesus says in Matthew 24, So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this last phrase was added by Matthew, then, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas, for those are the, with child and for those who gave suck in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or as in the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So that agrees with what Paul says here. So the person we have presented here is the long-expected Antichrist, the false Messiah, or the hopelessly lost one, which is what the phrase, the son of perdition, means. There's only one other person called by that name in the New Testament, and that is Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Jesus refers to the Antichrist as the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place. Paul describes him as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And that's exactly what Jesus said. This man takes his place in the temple as a desolating sacrilege. So Paul tells the Thessalonians that he had told them about this when he was with them. The reference here then is just a footnote to what he had already taught them. I wish we had the whole account of what he said, but obviously we have by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the divine inspired word of God enough to understand what he, what he taught. If we think about it carefully. So in verse six, Paul gets to the heart of his comments. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of, law, of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So according to Paul, the day of the Lord cannot come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. But the man of lawlessness cannot be revealed until something Still, some restraining power is taken out of the way. The question then that needs to be asked at this point is, well, what is that restraining power? Well, Paul's response to that question is, we know what it is. There's no need to tell the Thessalonians. They already know. If we ask, how did they know? The answer, of course, is that Paul had probably told them when he was with them. <laughs> but even if, if he had not, I feel he, they would have known. The reason is that every believer knows 
what it is that restrains evil. It's interesting that the word uh, that Paul employs here for know, K-N-O-W, know, is not the word genoska, which means to learn by experience. Instead, it is the word oido, odo, which means to know by insight, by inner information. So I believe that even today, we could ask any young believer, any Christian, since Jesus has come into your life, have you found anything that restrains evil in you? And from long experience, we know that the answer would be, yes, everything's different. We no longer have the same desires now that the Lord has come into our life. I'm I'm not saying that everything is now easy, but we don't have those same desires. And what the answer conveys is that the Holy Spirit has come in. And so God himself lives, dwells within us. So in the letter to the Galatians, Paul taught, teaches us that the desires of our flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit and the spirit's desires are opposed by the flesh in order to prevent you from doing what you would. Galatians 5.17. There's this mighty power at work that restrains evil in believers and though believers and through believers, it is at work restraining evil in the world. That's why Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Believers are the salt that preserve the world from decay and corruption. They're also the light of the world for while they're in it, they receive the, they relive the terrible darkness of the world by means of the Holy Spirit. They relieve it, excuse me, they relieve the terrible darkness. So that's why a lot of commentators agree that this refers to the Holy Spirit in the church. So Paul goes on to say, there's a mystery of evil at work in our world. And he calls it the mystery of lawlessness, which is already at work. It is the strange secret of universal evil. Even secular prophets are puzzled by it. What is it about humanity that makes it so difficult to correct the conditions that destroy it? It's a mystery. The mystery of lawlessness, the strange secret of human evil. Why is it that as the centuries go, as the centuries go by, we have made zero progress in curing human wickedness? We are still wrestling with the problem just as people wrestled with it 5,000 years before Jesus's birth. We do not make any progress in this area. So let's point out something interesting here. It says in verse 7, only he who now restrains will do so until he is out of the way. The phrase out of the way, when it's translated, literally is becomes out of the midst. It does not say he is taken out of the midst. Rather, it says he becomes out of the midst. It reminds us of Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says of the church, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will suddenly be removed out of the midst. So then, Paul says, the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. When the church, 
through whom the Spirit works to restrain sin is removed, the Spirit is not removed, merely His restraining instrument. Then begins the work of the lawless one. It will last, we learn from Revelation and from Daniel, for three and a half years. But it will end with what is described here as literally the unveiling of the presence of Jesus. That is what this phrase, his appearing and his coming, actually says. It is by the shining out of his presence. In other words, Jesus with his church had been here all along behind the scenes, but now he is made visible, and it's that unveiling which destroys the Antichrist. Jesus utters a word, and the man of lawlessness is destroyed. Further details are given in Revelation chapter 19, and the beast was captured, and with it false, the false prophet. This is the man of lawlessness, who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword of him who sits on the horse, the sword that issues from its mouth, the word of God uttered by the lips of Jesus. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Revelation 19, 20-21. In verses 9-12, through 12, we have this description of the methods of the man of lawlessness. The coming, the parousia, the presence of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they have refused to love the truth and to be saved. So God sends on them a strong delusion to make them believe what is false, so that it all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we may be thinking, this is crazy. <laughs> this is hard to wrap our minds around. And these verses, well, they don't really apply to us. We're bored again, and we're going to be called up before all this happens. We're going to die before all this happens. So it doesn't really concern us. But remember that in verse 7, Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So these verses describe the way evil works in our world today. It will be made worldwide in that day, but this is the way evil is working here on our planet right now. So there's there's five things that are stated. First of all, its origin is Satan at work behind the scenes. As Paul says in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wicked spirits in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this world. Secondly, Satan gains a following with counterfeit miracles. They claim to show God's hand at work, but they are either psychologically or demonically inspired. There needs to be great care exercised in this area. Remember, we don't know what a counterfeit is by studying false things. We know what is counterfeit by studying the truth. Thirdly, Satan employs various forms of deceptive evil, things that offer what seems good but which are ultimately destructive. These are always made to look like something wonderful. They seem to offer a lot, but the end result is pain, heartache, and destruction. Fourth, this approach makes its appeal to those who refuse to love the truth. 
who have no time for the scriptures, who refuse to judge themselves and will not listen to anyone, who even lovingly tries to point out that what they're doing is wrong. Such people have set their feet on a downward slant that's ultimately going to end in destruction. And fifthly, it opens the door for the ultimate delusion. They will believe what scriptures calls the lie. The RSV puts it this puts this, I think, probably too lightly. Make them believe what is false. Literally, it is the lie. The lie that has been propagated from the very beginning. The lie that was found in the Garden of Eden and has been in the world ever since. It is the lie that says we can be God in our own world. That is the lie. We can run our own life. We can do whatever we want. That is the lie. And that is what people everywhere are believing. And that, says Paul, will become a worldwide condition under the influence of this evil person who is called the man of lawlessness. It is humanism, the worship of man with a small m, mankind, in its ultimate form. And what Paul is underscoring through all of this is that the day of the Lord has not yet come. It is then still the day of grace. And that is good news. And that should give us hope. Hope on this first Sunday of Advent as we light the candle of hope because we are still living in the day of grace and the Lord has not yet come. It's then still the day of grace. People can still open their eyes and still believe the truth. We can turn to Jesus and be redeemed and then belong to the crowd who not because of our own righteousness, not because we've trust, but, but, but because we have trusted in the righteousness of another will be caught up to be with the Lord before the great day of trouble begins here on earth. So where do we stand? It's where Paul leaves us. Have we surrendered our life to Christ? Do we belong to him? Does he run our affairs? Do we listen to his words? Do we love him and follow him? If not, this is a moment when we can make that decision, when we can say, Lord Jesus, I invite you to enter my life, to take it over. Help me to, help me to follow you and walk in the ways of righteousness. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come in to him or her and will eat with him. It's Revelation 3, 20. That's his promise. That is our hope that we can open the door to him now because he is prepared to save us from the wrath that is to come. Amen, and God bless.